Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. What are some white people realizing lately? There seems to be just kind of a growing ripple of people who are paying attention and saying, white supremacy is a problem that I need to be learning about and that I need to be thinking about playing a role in fighting. And I, I don't think we've ever seen that in U.S. history, like, like right in this moment. And how do we raise anti-racist human beings? So there are a lot of different ways that you can encourage your child to dig deeper if you're a white family so that you can have these discussions about race that centers humanity and fairness and, you know, just having an open mind around what is race because we attach all these things to it that it's not. At a Black Lives Matter rally in Hartford, what do kids think about what they're seeing? Silence is not an option. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's next on Audacious after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. If you, as a white person, would be happy to receive the same treatment that our black citizens do in this society, please stand. You didn't understand the directions. If you, white folks, want to be treated the way blacks are in this society, stand. Nobody's standing here. That says very plainly that you know what's happening. You know you don't want it for you. I want to know why you're so willing to accept it or to allow it to happen for others. That was Jane Elliott. She's a teacher and diversity trainer, and she was made famous when the day after the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated, she began her Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes exercise in her third grade classroom in the all-white town of Riceville, Indiana. Jane would label the 28 third graders in her class who had brown eyes as superior. And the kids with blue eyes would be labeled as inferior. The superior children would get extra privileges and the inferior kids would get treated harshly. The next week, she would reverse the exercise and treat the blue-eyed children as superior. The idea was that it would expose them to some of what it feels like to be treated like a black person in America. How unfair, irrational, and absurd it was is to treat someone differently based on an arbitrary factor like the shade of a body part. Today on the show, we talk about the role white people play in anti-racist work and how we can all talk with young people about anti-racism. It's big, old, really complicated stuff, stuff I'm still figuring out. And from what I've learned, if I'm doing it right, it's stuff that I'll be figuring out for the rest of my life. Later, you'll hear from Amber Coleman-Mortley. She's a mom and the director of social engagement at iCivics. But first, John Bewin. John is the audio program director at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, and he's also the host and producer of Seen on Radio, a podcast that tells stories exploring human experience and American society. The second season of that series is called Seeing White. Through 14 episodes, it explores America's deep history of white supremacy. Bewin, who's white, is joined by co-host and collaborator Chenjerai Komanika, who's black, and the assistant professor at Rutgers University's Department of Journalism and Media Studies. The latest season of Seen on Radio just wrapped this week, and it's called The Land That Never Has Been Yet. 
It's from a Langston Hughes poem, Let America Be America Again, and it examines the ways in which the United States grapples with the democratic experiment. This moment in our history with ongoing protests across the nation and calls to defund or reevaluate the role of police seems really different to me. But is it? I mean, I haven't spent years exploring U.S. history. John Buen has. So I asked him what he's seeing right now that follows the same patterns we've experienced before. And what feels different for him? I think it does feel different. I don't know if I know enough about American history to know this, but my sense is that it's fair to say that probably never in American history has there been the kind of, I don't know if it's quite a critical mass, but the kind of critical mass that we're seeing right now of white people being willing to at least look seriously and say, oh, okay, there's something really serious here that we need to be looking at and we need to be taking responsibility for. And of course, that ranges from, you know, really active social justice warrior, anti-racists who've been in, in that, in those vineyards for years, but there seems to be just kind of a growing ripple of people who are paying attention and saying white supremacy is a problem that I need to be learning about and that I need to be thinking about playing a role in fighting. And I, I don't think we've ever seen that in U.S. history, like like right in this moment. And it's still, it still remains to be seen. When I say that, that's not, I don't mean that as a, okay, you know, I guess we're <laughs> going to figure it out now kind of statement. I, I'm There's too much American history to get too optimistic that we're somehow going to turn a corner in a profound way. I, that remains to be seen, obviously. But I do just, yes, we're in a different kind of moment, it seems. When it comes to talking with white people, even saying the words white people makes white people feel weird because we're not used to being categorized as a race. But when it comes to talking with white people, it seems like a pretty fraught process. I started this episode with a clip of Jane Elliott, and this tweet by Nia Imani really says it all. They said, WTF clicked for Jane Elliott. That's not clicking for the rest of whites. <laughs> and that includes me. I mean, I saw that Jane Elliott clip years ago, but I wasn't motivated to any substantial action. And for me, I feel like my own urgency as a white person recognizing and trying to be anti-racist has been more of a crescendo, which makes me think a lot about what your co-host Chenjirai Komanika said in episode four of your series, The Land That it Never Has Been Yet. He said, well, white people are learning, black people are dying. So what do you think our holdup is? Is it fear? Is it, I mean, isn't it always fear? And if it's fear, fear of what? The part of me that's inclined to be generous to my fellow human beings, really, but maybe to my fellow white people and maybe also to myself, is that there very much is this phenomenon where we know and we don't know, right, at the same time, where you can know something, or as, as one person that I interviewed one, once, actually a, a white guy who got involved in the civil rights movement, and he was talking about the double standard in their culture that values white lives infinitely more than black lives. And he said, you know, there was a sense in which even as a young activist joining SNCC and going to the Freedom Summer in the 60s, he said, there was a way in which I knew it, but I didn't feel it. So I think to go back to something like the Jane Elliott clip, I think there's a lot of us, 
at a certain stage of our development on this journey where we will see that clip and we'll say, yeah, she's yeah, that's that's a very strong point she's making. And because I'm a good non-racist person, I understand the point she's making. Um, what's for breakfast today, dear? You know, and right. right. So there's a sense, you know, you sort of, if you sort of feel like you're one of the good ones and you're, that's enough and you're taken care of and you're going about your life and you're not doing anything racist and you're not part of the problem, then you can just sort of assent to that. Right. And say, yeah, I get that. And she's right. And I hope some of these other people will understand it the way I do. But it's that there, there's, there is a very different step and it, and it feels like that's, the step that I've been trying to take here, I'm in my, deep into my fifties and it's been in the last, you know, five years into recognizing, okay, that's really not good enough. Just being a non-racist, a quote unquote non-racist, because for one thing, if you're going about your days and you're not doing anything racist, you know, in quotes, actually you you still are because you are participating in and benefiting from and helping to perpetuate systems that are racist and that oppress and that exclude and exploit. So that's, that's a step that a whole lot of us have never, have never come to that is in a way that feels like it puts any responsibility on us. That's, that's a huge step. And, and I don't know necessarily there will be millions and millions of white people who will have something of an, of a kind of wake up call, in this moment who, who still probably aren't going to get to that place. But yeah, that's, that's, I think there's getting it and then there's getting it. Robin D'Angelo, the author of the 2018 book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, recently said in this interview with NPR's Ari Shapiro. Racism is the foundation of the society we are in. And to simply carry on with absolutely no um, active uh, interruption of that system is to be complicit with it. And in that way, we can say that nice white people who really aren't doing anything other than being nice people are racist. There's no neutral place. Do you agree with that? That no matter how nice you are, how often you hold the door for a black person or press like on an article about black excellence, that if you're not doing something about it, you as a white person are racist and Will white people, no matter how active they are in dismantling racist systems, always be racist? I mean, there's a sense in which we will. I think it'd be just because it's it's the water we've been swimming in all our lives. But I do think, you know, and Ibram Kendi, who's another really important voice on this subject and in this moment, he, t- he talks more about a dichotomy of being racist or anti-racist. And he basically says you can't be non-racist. And this, which is another way of saying uh, Robin D'Angelo's point about there's no neutral ground. There's no neutral ground in which you can stand in which you're not involved in the question. You can't stand outside of the picture and say, oh, there's a struggle going on, but I'm just watching it out here. So that's, I think, what she's saying. But his point is, too, that you can't be non-racist in the sense that your actions are either perpetuating and reinforcing these racist systems that we have, or they are pushing on the side of dismantling them. White people can be anti-racist. So I guess if you're being anti-racist, then you're not being racist in in Ibram Kendi's formulation. I wonder what you think about the role humility 
plays and allowing white people to start removing their blind spots and their biases that get people to listen to Seeing White and the other series that you've been working on. I mean, in, in order to learn anything, anything at all, you have to at some point acknowledge that you didn't know it before, right? Or that you thought you understood something, but you realize I didn't quite get it. And now I see the bigger picture. And, and white people historically aren't really used to being humbled. And so I wonder how you view the role of humility in anti-racist work for white people. I think it's very important. Um, yes, in the sense that you're talking about, that you have to be willing to say, I maybe really don't get it and I need to learn. That is huge. But there's also humility that's required to the extent that we identify with whiteness and with the white race, that if you're going to go down a path that's going to lead to things like Chandrayaan Kumanika saying, as he said to me in one of our conversations in Seeing White, when was whiteness good? By the way, and I hasten to add, in case people are reaching for the off button, that's not saying when was there ever a decent white person. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that white people are inherently evil or that we're, we're or, or even that we should walk around feeling guilty and ashamed. That's not the point. The point is whiteness itself as a construct and frankly, as a tool, because that's what it is. Its only role, its only reason for existing was to justify oppression and, and exploitation originally in the form of slavery. That's why it was invented to justify slavery. We're going to call ourselves white. We're going to say these people are black. We're going to make up a bunch of stories about the inferiority of black people. Ipso facto, white people are superior. And that's why whiteness even exists as a concept, because God knows none of us are literally white, right? Right, right. And there's also, I mean, there are people who are very, very dark brown. I don't know if there's anybody who's literally black either, right? So, so these are constructs and relatively recent inventions five, 600 years ago. So for a white person who is really has a lot of pride wrapped up, and I'm not even talking about like white pride, but just, just having grown up and feeling kind of good about being a white person, that's a big hurdle for a lot of people to get over. And I guess what I, what I would say is it's okay. It's okay. It's, it's really not about you individually. And it's not about whether you're a good person or not. You know, we can all let go to whatever extent we have it. <laughs> our attachment and our identification with whiteness as part of what makes us valuable in the world, and we'll, we'll be better for it. And, and we can still be an okay person as a European American or whatever. Right? So looking forward, Michelle Alexander, who is best known for her 2010 book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, said in the New York Times this week, we find ourselves here for the same reasons a civil war tore our nation apart more than 100 years ago. Too many citizens prefer to cling to brutal and unjust systems than to give up political power, the perceived benefits of white supremacy, and an exploitative economic system. If we do not learn the lessons of history and choose a radically different path forward, we may lose our last chance at creating a truly inclusive egalitarian democracy. John, <laughs> with all the work that you've been doing researching and understanding the facts of the history of the United States, especially as it uh, pertains to our democracy, if we want to call it that. Do you think she's right? Nobody knows what's going to happen, right? But I, but I do think we are 
on the precipice and we are in a very scary moment. One of the main lessons of this 12 part series that we are just completing on the show season four, we call it the land that never has been yet, which is from a Langston Hughes poem, but we chose that title because it's a central point of the series is that the United States has never been as democratic as we tell ourselves we are. That's not to say that we're completely, obviously there are elements of our society, you know, it's, 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 it's a spectrum, right? You're not either democratic or not. We're, we're more democratic than lots of societies. We have elements that are democrat. And the point is we have a lot of democratic aspects to lose. We could be much, much, much less democratic than we are now, right? So, and we are moving in that direction fast. If Donald Trump is elected and we have four more years of Trump, I don't know what would be left of our, just the systems, the checks and balances and the systems that are supposed to, and traditions that are supposed to provide some accountability and transparency. Yeah, it's terrifying. If you were to take a snapshot of 2020 and send it back to yourself with just a quick summary of what's been going on, and send it back to yourself in, I don't know, October of 2016. Do you think John Bewin would be surprised at what's happening in June of 2020? Yes. <laughs> How could you predict all of this? And we talked about this in our, our, our new episode that we have these sort of enormous crises, any one of which would be is historic. Yes, I'm alarmed and frightened, but I'm also, there's also ways in which there are reasons for hope in all of it. And I think, frankly, the fact that there are people in the streets in the way that there are right now, that's kind of heartening to me. Because especially in the pandemic, I've had moments of daydreaming and thinking, is there a moment when we're going to need to have 10 million Americans in the streets to prevent a complete authoritarian takeover, for example? Again, just 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 daydreaming. Just wondering. You know, hypothetically. Yeah, no. Totally hypothetically. And, and then thinking, I don't know. I don't know if Americans will do it. I don't know if we'll leave the house and go do that when it comes to it. But if you think about things like the Civil War, followed by Reconstruction, and the Great Depression, followed by the New Deal period, there is certainly a reality that the greatest crises can sometimes be pivotal and can catalyze real change. And that deeper kinds of changes that are considered radical and sort of out there on the fringes and something that as a journalist, you, sh you wouldn't be allowed to say that two years later, all of a sudden that can, it can be obvious to everybody that we need to do that thing. <laughs> There's a sense in which we could be in that kind of moment too. Things could also go completely to hell because in moments like in moments of crisis, the people who have anti-democratic agendas are going to push, they're going to try to push it forward too. And there's a whole, you know, Naomi Klein's book, Shock Doctrine is sort of about that, right? People using the excuse of a crisis to, to push, take advantage. Yeah. Yeah. To push in the wrong, what I consider to be the wrong direction, but it can also really be a moment of promise. And uh, so, so I think even just the fact that all of a sudden we're having serious conversations in this country about, do we defund police departments? And what would that look like? And what does that mean? We weren't having that conversation three weeks ago. So it's a, it's a, wow, it's a moment we're in. It's for sure. 
Well, John Bewin, host and producer of the Scene on Radio series from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. Thank you so much for talking to me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Do yourself a favor and check out sceneonradio.org. That's S-C-E-N-E on radio so you can hear all of their series, including Seeing White and the land that never has been yet. I used to host a live advice show at CT Comedy Theater in Hartford called Asking for a Friend with Kyone Wolf. And there was a segment of the show called Why You So Salty, where the panelists and audience members would get stuff off their chest. Drew John Ladd was a panelist in 2018. He's an author and public speaker, and what he said resonated really powerfully then, and unfortunately, now. Uh, I'm salty because it's 2018 and black people aren't safe in America. Mm. I'm salty because it's we've never been safe in America, ever. There's never been a single period in time that I could time travel back to where black people have ever been safe or equal or respected or anything. I'm salty because killing black people has become a spectator sport where instead of going out and changing the world and using our people using their privilege to change things, we just watch black people get killed now. So instead of it being a secret, we all know and we still do the exact same thing, nothing. I'm salty because I have to watch my nephews go to school and wonder if they're gonna come back alive in this legitimate fear. I'm salty because when I see cops in my rear view, I fear for my life and it's a legitimate fear. I'm salty because this is the world I have to live in. There's no other place on earth I can even go. I'm salty because as much as I love being an American, as much as I'm proud of where I'm from and who I am, America doesn't love me and never has. I'm salty because America keeps trying to convince me that it loves me. I'm salty. I don't have a choice not to be. I don't get to not be this. I don't get to not be in this body. And also, I get to be in this body. I get to be proud of being in this body, but I'm salty because this body comes with consequences. Being proud in this body comes with consequences, deadly consequences. Being smart in this body comes with consequences. This body is criminal. This body is deadly. This body is any number of other things that they decide to staple to it. I'm salty I've never had a choice and neither has anyone else, neither have any of the other names that aren't famous enough or body cammed enough or, or public enough for us to know them and recite them and visit their graves or put them up on our Facebook page like it means something. It doesn't have to be like this. This is a choice that we make. We choose to live in this country. That's why I'm salty. That was Drew John Ladd. You can find him at patreon.com slash Drew Writes Stuff. Coming up, you'll hear from a woman who's an educator, a podcaster, and a mom about how to talk with children effectively about anti-racism. And you'll hear from parents and kids during my visit to a Black Lives Matter rally in Hartford last weekend. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back.
This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking about the role white people play in anti-racist work and how we can all talk with young people about anti-racism. If we can help the humans who are growing up right now to spot these patterns of abuse from the playground all the way to the presidency, then maybe we can see a real evolution in the ways that our country and the world treats those who are black and brown. Amber Coleman-Mortley is the Director of Social Engagement at iCivics, Inc., a nonpartisan civic education, gaming, and classroom resource. On her blog, Mom of All Capes, she writes and podcasts about practical strategies parents can use in ed tech, civics, and social-emotional development. One of her recent episodes was centered around having family discussions about racism, why parents and educators should talk about race, and they share tips to help get these conversations started. I asked her how early we can talk to kids about race. Studies have shown that babies as young as three months prefer to look at pictures of faces from their own race and that children as young as five treat race as a social category. So how early can we start to refine these minds and what are some fundamentals we can start with? Talking about race can start very early. Kids are observant. In fact, kids are watching how their parents are reacting to people that are different from them at an early age. So like, even though they're connecting with you because they're trying to find mom and dad, right? They're looking for where's mom, where's dad, or where's the caregiver in my life that is providing me safety and food. When you move from that point to that now, how are these people engaging with the people around us that are different from us and that are the same as us? Now you're teaching kids about race. So your actions, when you're passing by someone different from you on the street, you're in that stroller and like maybe you're you know nervous or uncomfortable or you look away, then that trains your kid that that's the appropriate reaction when you engage with someone that looks different from you. So you don't even have to say anything to your kids. You are literally modeling for them um, how to engage on a level with another human being that looks different or the same. Now, as far as conversations are concerned, you know, for people of color, like we're having these conversations all the time because unfortunately our identities are centered around instances that might happen at school that may or may not be positive, instances that happen in the news that we are hyper-focused to, right? Um, So we don't really have the luxury to completely ignore race. And I would say it's almost dangerous to do so if you're a person of color, right? Like not acknowledging it, right? I would definitely encourage building that empathy muscle, like white families talking with their kids, you know, about like, if you see something in the news, right? Like maybe you live in a homogenous community. There's no people of color around you, or at least there aren't any discernible differences where you're like, that's a person of color. Thinking about the images that you see in the news, talking with your kids about that, right? Like you can teach your kids and talk to your kids about race and build up a person who has the capacity for ki- to care for others who look different from them, even without living in spaces that are diverse. So how you talk to your kids about the image in the news, the images in your entertainment and media that you guys consume. Uh, the images and how your city portrays people of color and particularly people of color when it when it comes to crime, you know, how your community or how your church or how your worship spaces talk about people of color and, and, and people of difference, you know, so we need to have these conversations and like challenge the notions and allow our kids to be critical thinkers. Um, so you want to be asking your kids, you know, 
we'll use crime, for example. Is this criminal a criminal because they're black or is this person a criminal because, you know, the situations around poverty have created this perfect storm for this person's life? Or is this person a criminal because they're a bad person? Hopefully that answer is no in your home, right? Um, so there are a lot of different ways that you can encourage your child to dig deeper if you're a white family around a lot of images and things so that you can have these discussions about race that centers humanity and fairness and you know just having an open mind around what is race because we attach all these things to it that it's not. <laughs> Completely. Yeah. My parents divorced when I was 12 and my mom got remarried and the man she married was a assistant state's attorney. So a prosecutor. And before I met him, I would see people being arrested on the news and I would say, well, you know, you don't know where they came from. You don't know what they've been through. I mean, you don't know what the circumstances are and you don't really know. And, and there's more to it than that. And as soon as he entered my life, it was like, well, if they were arrested, they were probably guilty. I wouldn't want them near my kids. And it was night and day and it was that fast. And I was 12. And it's the rest of my life that I'll be unlearning these things and getting back to seeing the nuances of a, an entire human being among other entire human beings in a community. And that's, that's hard to unlearn. And you have to want to unlearn it because it's easier just to simplify things and go and have an us and them attitude, which is why it's so important that we talk about this stuff with our kids as, as, as soon as we can. we can. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. I also really want to talk about how we talk to our kids about the leadership in our country. Now, the people in positions of power in this country, I'm kind of skirting it. Because our president has been so outspoken about how he feels about race relations in this country, everything from before he was president to calling for the death penalty for the five people arrested in Central Park, to referring to African countries as whole nations, asking why the U.S. can't have more immigrants from Norway instead. All the things that our president has said that have been beyond problematic, flat-out racist, Regardless of how you feel about him, he is still in a position of power. He was still constitutionally elected to his position. And that sends a message to our children that someone with those beliefs can hold that power, can hold that office. Where do we start with him and the people who enable him? Yeah, so I would say, whether you voted for him or not, the place that you need to start is in a history book. We need to look at where historically, which would be, I would say, in 1619, where the first enslaved people were brought here against their will, to the uh, Declaration of Independence, then to the signing of the Constitution, to the Andrew Jackson moving indigenous people off of their land so that we could expand. I think we need to, as a country, and specifically as white people, thinking about where in history this started and how does history continue to perpetuate and then how can we knowing what our history as a country is and facing it for what it is this is a very beautiful country democracy is an experiment but if you're not willing to engage in that experiment the experiment's just gonna keep going as it's been going it's gonna go awry it's gonna just keep wheeling in the same direction that it's in Right. So we have to, one, acknowledge our history, tell whole stories, tell full truths, 
period. Teach our kids the truth, no matter how hurtful it is to you, no matter how, you know, your heroes might seem not as shining bright. You know, the people who crafted the Constitution were brilliant men, but some of them owned slaves, right? So, like, we really need to allow the space for adults and children to work through that, you know, to like, man, that's awesome, but man, that's a bummer. We contain multitudes. Right. And then say, what's our values after that? What are we going to take from that? And what are we going to leave? <laughs> what are we gonna, right? And what are we going to leave behind? And then as we move into the more current past, right, when we look at like Jim Crow era, the civil rights era that tried but didn't fully manifest into what people would have envisioned it to become, what are the lessons that we can learn from those citizens who use the justice system and use the Constitution to fight for rights? And now what can we take with us and what can we leave behind? And then I think in this moment, it's very important for all of us to then look and say, okay, we're in this moment. Things are insane for some. Some people are still relaxed. How can we as citizens play the game and use the constitution and use and leverage the justice system so that we can then create an even more just society? We're not going to reach the mark of what, the framers of the constitution put forth maybe ever because human beings are flawed. The objective here is to make sure that we align ourselves with justice, right? And that we leverage the tools that we have at our disposal to seek that justice and move ourselves closer to our ideals. So that's what I would say. You know, it's not necessarily a matter of the office. It's not necessarily a matter of the person in it. It's a matter of the decisions that we as citizens make individually and collectively to support justice. Now, there are plenty of kids who have parents and teachers who are keeping them informed and they're practicing asking questions and standing up for people who are victims of racist acts. But at the same time, there are so many kids who are not receiving that good work. And worse, there are so many kids who are hearing from the adults in their lives in like a thousand ways the perpetuation of racist and violent, well, I repeat myself, stereotypes. And that's part of how we got here, right? Is that these babies have been brought up in this country that is steeped in the tradition of racism, and they're becoming adults who raise their babies in this ancient tradition of racism. I guess I'm wondering about, you sound hopeful, because we have made progress. As a black woman, as a mom, as an educator, as a human being, I want to hear more about that hope and what's in it. Because I know it's not, it's not all just blind hope. Yeah, no, definitely is, <laughs> definitely is not uh, blind hope. If I could put it into perspective, my grandfather grew up as a sharecropper in Mississippi. Mississippi is one of the most racist places in the United States. It has been historically, let's be honest, right? He grew up sharecropping there. He is now, he retired as an engineer, lots of decades as an engineer. My dad's and uncles, you know, they work in engineering. And I use that because my grandfather's grandfather was a slave. And so my grandfather grew up listening to stories about slavery and enslavement from his grandfather. And then I grew up listening to stories about sharecropping and, you know, enslavement and integration and, and all these stories about like, how his grandfather was in one place and now he's standing in another place, right? And so, and how much gratitude he has for the fact that he was able to just survive through his life, right? 
now I'm thinking to myself, like, well, if my grandfather was in this space and his grandfather was in that space and I am in this space, where can we now go? Now, what about the role of schools? I mean, our kids spend a lot of time there and they're being influenced at school as much, if not more, than when they're at home. So what responsibility do schools have in teaching our kids to be anti-racist? Schools have a responsibility because they are supported by tax dollars or your private dollars or whatever. Schools have a responsibility to help us in this effort of anti-racism and moving the needle forward. We're all paying into the system. And if schools are uplifting their civic mission of preparing people to be citizens within a society, then part of that civic mission is making sure that people are adequately prepared to work together. And that work, because we are a multi-ethnic nation, requires us to work across cultures and differences and genders and you know sexual orientation, expression, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Steeping schools in this whole social emotional portion of like, hey, we got to work together, but you also have to have empathy for your friends sitting here and make sure that you remember that when you get out of here and exercise that as an adult. So, you know, that's that's where my hope is. I feel like I know the answer to this one, but I'm going to ask anyway. Should kids go to protests? Mixed feelings about that, right? On one end, right, you have like your First Amendment rights or whatever. Protest has been, you know, deeply seated as something in this country that has just helped push the needle on so many issues. I think that that's a family decision, talking about it as a family, um, sitting down and talking about the positives in it and also the negatives, right? Protests can unfortunately sometimes evolve into more dangerous experiences, whether it was intended to or not. So like, you have to be honest. If your child is interested in protesting and you're nervous about it, but you still want to support their voice, go with them and stand in the back. Check it out, then go get in the car. You know, like, you know, it's like when we get in the ocean, we like step up to it, let the waves touch our feet and go away. And then we're like, okay, I think I'm ready. I'm going to just run in, right? So I would say little by little, exposing your child to it if that's something that you feel as a family you're capable of supporting. But I definitely believe that that is a family choice. Um, I will say the inaugural Women's March, my daughters and my mom and my cousin and my aunt, we all went down. We made signs, we made t-shirts, you know, in support of the black women and black feminist thought leaders that we thought, you know, like we wanted to support. But again, that was a family choice. And we had a contingency plan. You know, my kids were relatively small. We had a safety plan if we got separated, you know, so you have to think through all of that. You know, you can't just say, we're going to go to a protest, like this is what we're doing and not have a plan. If you are not comfortable with your child going to protest, there are other ways that you can show them how to support a movement or support fighting injustice, right? Talk about the organizations that are doing the work. Donate as a family. Your allowance if you have one. Right, exactly. You know, research the issue, go door to door in your neighborhood and talk to your neighbors about the injustice as you see it, right? So you don't necessarily have to protest all the time, right? If you're not comfortable with your kid doing it, that is your choice. But I would also say you want to guide that desire because we never want to quench the fire. You know, tell a kid like, just, you know, shut up and go in a corner. We always want to encourage children to express themselves and express the things that they're passionate about and help them work through what is the best, most productive way that I can channel this energy to make 
real tangible change. Because in the end, we do want children to grow up to be empowered people who feel like they can make a significant difference in this world because we need them. We definitely need them to do so. What do you say to white people who are feeling overwhelmed by the enormity of what's going on? I mean, they want to do right by their kids. They want to do right by the black community, by the people of color and indigenous people around them. But this this is a lot, especially if you're new to this uh, a little bit late, but we're glad you're here. What should those who feel that way keep in mind? Every family, you know, has their own journey on this crazy path working through whatever it is that you're working through, but it is tantamount that you start the journey. Avoiding it is going to do more harm than good. Pretending that this isn't happening, you might not know any people of color. You might not ever come across people of color ever in your lives. You might say, you know, there's no point in me ever addressing this. Like my, you know, ecosystems aren't impacted by this, but they are economically, politically, socially, race touches everything, whether we want to believe so or not. And so it's just really important for us to just go on this journey and like acknowledge and everyone's going to end at a different point too. And that's okay. As long as you make an attempt to do something actionable, I think that that's noble. Well, Amber Coleman Mortley, thank you so much for talking to me. Oh my gosh, I had the best time, Kyle. Thank you so much. You can hear those podcasts and see more of Amber's work at momofallcapes.com. When we get back from the break, you'll hear sound from last weekend's Black Lives Matter protests in Hartford, including conversations I had with parents about why they brought their kids to the rally. And you'll hear from those kids about what they're seeing, feeling, and hoping might come out of it all. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we've been talking about the role white people play in anti-racist work and how we can all talk with young people about anti-racism. After talking with Amber Coleman-Mortley, I went to the Black Lives Matter rally in Hartford last weekend and talked with parents and kids about why they were there. Hey there, is it okay if I interview you from Connecticut Public Radio? So um, I'm asking parents and kids to talk about what they're doing here today. Why, why was it important to bring your kid? Uh, I think it's important to bring my kid so she understands that our voices have power and that when we see injustice, whether it impacts us directly or not, we have a right to stand up for that, for what I believe in. And, and my daughter's nine. She understands a lot of what's going on, and, and I think it's important she participates in these because you know, I want her to be part of the change in the future. What's your name? Edith. Edith, why are you here today? My dad brought me here so I could see what a protest is and what's happening. What kind of things are you seeing on the signs? Um, signs that say Black Lives Matter and people who got killed by police and stuff. Why do you think it's so important for all of us to get together to talk about anti-racism? So that we can end it. Is there anything else you want to say? I'm very proud of her. I'm proud of all the families that brought kids here. I know it's kind of scary to get your kids outside right now, but we decided this was worth it. And um, I'm happy and I'm proud of the city too. I'm proud of so many people came out. 
and I'm hopeful that that they're listening to us and that we start seeing policy change and that um, we create a new generation of activists. Why is it important for young people to be here? As adults, as even as I'm talking, it's so easy to drown out the voice of young people and uh, I'm here with my sons as their father, but they know that I love them first and foremost. And what we want them to know is that whatever they want to be, whatever they desire to be, whatever they want to work hard to be, that that is what they can accomplish. I want them to be able to walk with their heads up, to be able to say their own names loudly, but most importantly, to be able to go forward. And so it is important for them to be here. It's important for young men of color, young women of color to know that they have a, a lot of people that are walking with them. There's a lot of people who will speak up for them. So we're just out here. I want this to be a learning experience for them, you know, and just to be able to see, because I know this won't be the last time that protest is needed, but for them to know they can participate. So that's one of them, their opinions. What's your name? Azariah. And how old are you, Azariah? Eight. Why are you here? To um, protest with my family. What kind of feelings are you feeling as you walk through all this? Happiness and um, greatness. I'm Roseanne Bisayan. I'm from West Hartford. And you have a child with you. How old is your child? She's four. Her name's Lucy. Why was it important to bring four-year-old Lucy to the Capitol today to protest? We see what's going on in the world right now and we can do better. What would you say to parents who are afraid to talk to their kids about anti-racist work? You can't be afraid. That, that we, we really need to, to make some serious changes in this country. And it starts, you know, at home with how we treat our kids and how we expose them to everyone. Don't be afraid. Take the step. Lucy, what does your sign say? Be kind. Your sign says be kind. Does it apply to everybody? Should should everybody be kind? Yeah. Are you happy to be here? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My name is Harper. What does the sign in your hand say? We all are created in God's image, love, Trump's hate. Anything else you're seeing on signs? I spy with my little eye. I see no justice. No peace. Yeah. Can't believe. Can't breathe. Can't breathe? Yeah, I can't breathe. Yeah, me too. I'm just stressed out. <laughs> What's your name? Michaela. Michaela, how old are you? Eight. Why are you here today, Michaela? So we can understand that Black Lives Matter and we shouldn't kill people or anything like that. Why do you think it's important that people your age come to rallies like this? So we can learn. They just cheered for that. <laughs> What's your name? Nathan. How old are you, Nathan? Nine. All right, Nathan. What kind of things are you seeing around here today? I'm seeing that we're fighting for justice so that um, we can have equal rights. When you see all the people who showed up today, how does it make you feel? It makes me feel happy because that that no that lets me feel that Black Lives Matter and it's true, and other people care. What's your name? If it's okay. Madeline. Madeline, how old are you? Five. What does your sign say? Black Lives Matter. Right. What do the other signs say? 
Dance is not an option. Now what's your name? L'Oreal. And why is it important for you to bring your kids to protest? I felt like it was important because in 10 years he'll be 20 and he'll be driving, he'll be walking the streets, he'll be doing anything and he could possibly be stopped by the police too. So I wanted to make him aware that these things can happen. Not that it's a norm, but we're not alone in this and I wanted them to see how much support we had from our community. How much of it has to do with preparing them to do this over and over again if need be? All of it. Sad to say, I don't think it's going to go anywhere anytime soon, so I want to make them aware. So that it, that's why it was really important for them to see everyone outside. Tasha, Brian! Any other messages you want to say to the whole world? You can say anything you want. I like chicken nuggets. I like potatoes. I like trains. Why was it important to bring these children here today? I'm a mother. I have a young son and a daughter. And what has happened in this country and in general has outraged me. So I, I had to be here. I could not be here. So letting them see this is how you have a voice to speak out peacefully. What about you? What's your name and how old are you? I'm Simone and I'm eight years old. And what about you? My name is Ross and I'm nine years old. About to be ten. Congratulations. <laughs> so how does it feel for you to be here? Pretty good um, to see people holding up signs and holding up their strength to see what's happening right now. What about you? How are you feeling at the Capitol today for this rally? I'm just feeling like pretty happy that all these people are showing like all these emotions for like George Floyd and other black people that have passed and things like that. So. Why do you think it's so important that young people come to these rallies? So that they can remember this and then they can see if history repeats itself. Those were parents and children at the Black Lives Matter rally in Hartford last weekend. We'll have more resources on anti-racism at our website, ctpublic.org slash audacious. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Kion Wolf. And if you have thoughts on this episode, I would love to hear them. Use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. <laughs>